podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes, you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca, we talk to one of T20's most successful desk models. Harry Gurney, former seam bowler and now hub company managing director. It's a fascinating story about how he changed his bowling got very good before anyone noticed, took a lot of red ball wickets, perfected two slow balls and a Yorker, was overlooked by England, and then suddenly he had a huge breakout year and retired pretty much straight away. I want to start with your career, the early career, because I think late career, you know, people know the story a little bit more, but um, I must admit, like, usually when I get someone like you on, I know their career a little bit and, uh, you know, I pop a couple of questions in. Uh, in fact, you asked for the questions beforehand, and I didn't send you my proper notes because I didn't want to freak you out of how much research I actually did on your early career. Right. Um, because I got a bit obsessed with it. It, it was quite interesting. <laughs> so here's one of my first questions. Now I feel like I understand the pattern of your career a little bit more, and we'll get to how this happened. Were you someone who happened to like cricket and was a very good athlete? and then worked it out because you were left arm? Or are you someone who was a cricket badger who was desperate to stay in your career? Because looking at your numbers, I can't work out where you sort of fit on the, on the cricket athlete scale. Uh, I wouldn't describe myself as particularly athletic. I think at school, I was, um, I was okay at sport. I wasn't, you know, I'd, I'd turn my hand to anything, but I was not one of these, you know, A.B. de Villiers playing, you know, every sport under the sun at national level. You know, it was, um, it was more... Uh, I was I was a half decent sportsman, but but found and fell in love with cricket and got pretty obsessed with it um, from the age of. I mean, I discovered it relatively late. I was probably about ten or eleven, which compared to most is sort of slightly later, probably. Um, yeah, just got very very deeply obsessed with it. So the reason I ask this is the first few years of your career, you know, you probably get a bump because you got high action in you know your left armour and and there aren't that many in, well in all of English cricket so you know you're you're a bit of a, a novelty but the first few years they don't go particularly well like you look at your Leicester numbers um, and for a long time uh, you know if you were the sort of player who played a few years at Leicester and then didn't go to another county I, I don't think looking at your numbers it would be that surprising I've seen you know I've seen better players than you sort of fade away. What what is at that stage? Are you still learning the game in that sort of early Leicester period? Yeah, I think so. I think um, they probably saw a few attributes that they liked. A little bit of believe it or not, a bit of pace um, in those days. The fact I was a left armer, um, and early on in my career, I swung the ball uh, back into right-handers certainly more than I ended up doing. So uh, they saw some attributes there. I think that they liked and. Um, what what I did well from pretty early on was uh, the T20 stuff. Once I got into that, I think in 2010, I did pretty well in that. And then they and then they sort of wanted to drip feed me into four day cricket, if you like. So um, that was the way round that I did it. And and you're right. I think my numbers, particularly in the four day game, for the first few years were pretty ordinary. Um, and yeah, I think that was just a case of it a not being necessarily a strength of mine, but b bit of learning going on and getting some strength up and 
um, keeping myself on the park and all that kind of thing, which um, as a young bowler is um, is one of the challenges. Well, the, the first class thing is interesting because obviously no one cares about Harry Gurney's first class career other than like hardcore knots fans now, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting because I looked at your uh, your overall average is not particularly exciting. But then when you break it down and you realize that when you're at Leicester, which is what, three, four years at, at the start of your career, that back half of your career at Knotts, you actually average 28 over a long period of time. So that's when I start to think, that's when I start to look at this and go, uh, either he worked out that there was a chance of making a profession out of this, or he's a cricket guy and he's like, I've stuck around long enough now. Now I have to work out things. And that all plays into, and we'll get to the T20 stuff later on, but that all plays into the T20 stuff. So you had pace, you could swing it. I assume that is the case if you're a left-arm bowler, unless you're, well, Jack Chantry, um, <laughs> you know, although he could swing it just the just wrong way. way. But, yeah. yeah. But I assume that you had those attributes, but what is it about the first class stuff that you start to learn and you start to change, especially as you say, you don't swing it as much at the end of your career. So what are you doing differently in red ball cricket towards the end? So I think first half of my career was a bit of swing and a bit of pace. And then when I made that move to Nottinghamshire, um, they really injected belief into me. I think sometimes that was a little bit lacking at, at Leicestershire. And, and I moved to Notts and I got this belief of, yes, you're part of this seam bowling unit. You are going to play eight to 10 games a year. Um, you can swing the ball. You've got, you've got a good pace. I was surrounded by other very good bowlers, Luke Fletcher, Andre Adams, people like that. And the other thing is I managed to stay on the park. I managed to get myself fitter and stronger and stay on the park for longer. So that helps as well. It helps you learn your game more when you can get more overs under your belt before you break down. So, and then second half of my career in the red ball arena, um, I started to come round the wicket to right-handers a lot more. Um, we did some analysis, analysis and it was Wayne Noon that pointed it out. I think I was averaging about halfway through one season, probably about 2015 or something. And he said, you know, from over the wicket to right-handers, you're averaging 40. And from around the wicket, you're averaging 20. Um, so from that point on, I think it was around then that Brodie was coming around the wicket to lefties all the time, just as his mm. default, you know, angle and, and nicking them off for fun. And I did a bit of work with him on it as well at the time. And I just thought, right, that's it. From now on, I'm just coming around the wicket to right-handers, you know, unless it's swinging. Um, which as we've discussed, it happened for whatever reason, less and less as my career went on. I mean, that's that's really interesting because that's always been my dream of like, you know, Mustafa Rahman coming around the wicket. And I, I know if you remember, but Mitchell Johnson, before Australia tried to make him into a swing bowler and before he became just hitting people a lot, bowler, hmm. um, early in his career, he actually bowled left arm around the wicket cutters at like 130 k's an hour <laughs> and no one could play him, right? Like it's impossible to be able to play him. He had that low arm as well. So, you know, the, the old one would skid through and then the other one would grip. Um, it's really interesting that uh, that you sort of become that because again, that is a non-traditional bowler, right? So you're a, you're a red ball bowler. Um, you're picked, you know, because of, uh, you know, normal um, skills. And then you, you sort of remodel that to make your career. So that that sort of shows you the pattern that happens all the way through your career. So uh, that's very fascinating, but I have no uh, first-class stats for uh, over and around the wicket, but um, <laughs> I would love to now go through and have a look at that. I wonder, because I really think that's something that I think left-armers don't do it because of the obsession with swinging the ball back in. Mm, and then 100%. the other thing is you have such a natural advantage, right? Like mm. it's, you almost, you almost need to do it on the days where it's not working, but mm. you know, there's a great ball online of, um, of Mustafiza doing it to blessing Muzurambani. Now, obviously, you probably don't need a great ball to bowl blessing uh, with, <laughs> but it's like a ball that pitches on middle stump and takes off. And I'm not sure how anyone in the world is supposed to play that ball. But uh, I had a look at your career, and 2013 is the real year when everything sort of comes together. 
He took 48 wickets at 28 that year, which is in first-class cricket, which is a lot more than you'd ever taken before. Um, this is, I think, a couple of years maybe into you being at Notts, or was that first year? Second year, yeah. Second yeah, season. second year at Notts. Uh, list A cricket, you took 18 wickets at 27 uh, with an economy of 5.8. And in T20, you took 20, uh, uh, you had a 26 average and a 6.39 economy. If you look at your numbers up until that point, if you'd been a right-arm bowler, I wonder if you would have still been uh, getting contracts. It's not that, as you said, there's a couple of early seasons in your T20 career where if you're paying attention, and as you and I know, people probably weren't paying as much attention back then. Yeah. Uh, but if you're paying attention, you would have seen, oh, there's something very special here. But I, if you're a right-arm bowler, I wondered if you'd ever been in the system. But because of, by that point, you've been playing for, that's what, your fifth professional year, um, 2009 is when you make your debut. You've now learned enough. Uh, what happens in that 2013? Is it just a combination of fitness and experience? Or is it, um, uh, you know, is there something else that happens? Is there a technical breakthrough that you have? So to address the first part of the question, I guess, around um, would I have still been around as a right armour with, with those figures, and I, d I don't think it's an unreasonable question. I think what probably carried me through those formative years in my career was the, was the T20 thing. You know, I'd, 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 2010 and 2011, I did pretty well for Leicestershire and then got signed by Nottinghamshire pretty much off the back of the blast in 2011, really. Um, really? Okay. <clears throat> I had a game against not second team in that season, uh, a three-day game. Um, where I bowled with good pace at, at one or two senior, one or two of the senior Knotts players were playing. Ali Brown was playing, I can remember. And I think Mick Newell got some good feedback from that. But pretty much, I was, um, I was signed by you know those last couple of years at Leicester, I was seen as a T20 bowler, and then I was pretty much signed by Knotts on that. Albeit Mick saw me with someone who could potentially develop and have potential in the four-day arena. It's very rare to see someone sort of break through in all three years, uh, in all three formats at once. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a, that to me says either it was a massive technical change or it's just confidence slash experience all came together at once. I think confidence, a bit of experience. Um, the biggest thing, uh, the most obvious thing that happened there was the winter of 2012, 2013, I was in Sydney playing grade cricket. Um, and that is the best thing I ever did. And, um, it frustrates me that more young cricketers don't do it these days. There's a lot of people staying staying in the cold, cold gym in England, um, more bothered about how big their biceps are than than bowling. And um, so that winter, I went over and played for Bankstown in grade cricket, um, which, as I'm sure you're aware, is a, is a decent standard of cricket. And I bowled a load of overs. My captain, Jared Burke, uh, I'll never forget the first training session. He said. Uh, do you like long spills? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, let's go for it. So I bowled a lot of overs. It was hot. The Bankstown Oval was quite slow and low. Um, I lived just before I went. Lummy had said to me, whatever you do, make sure they don't put you in Bankstown. I was like, all right, cool. So I said, I don't want to live in Bankstown. So they put me in Cronulla um, with a balcony literally overlooking the uh, over the beach. It was, it was incredible. Um, and I just went and um, I didn't go to the gym. Um, because again, every winter up till that point and probably after that as well, you spend your winters in the gym because that's just the default position. But um, I didn't want to do that. I went away and I, I lied to Mick and I said, yeah, yeah, I've got a gym membership. And all I did is I ran 10K three or four times a week and did press-ups and sit-ups um, that whole winter. And then I would train on a Tuesday and a Thursday and I'd play on a, on a Saturday. And um, I did really well. I think from memory, some, I think at one point I'd, I got four fivefers in a row four four weekends in a row or four games in a row um and so i came back that pre-season um 
fit um, and confident and, and sort of raring to go. And um, it's no coincidence that I had probably arguably my best ever season. Would it, is that, you know, I mean, we saw, his, I mean, your, your, your mate, your, your fellow pub landlord, uh, you know, he, he went over to Australia at what, 18, 17, whatever he was, um, played in, in a lower grade of cricket, in fact, um, same, uh, a couple of uh, rungs lower, but uh, he goes over to Australia and it changes him. Do you think, have you gone over a little bit earlier? That might have, that might have helped you a little bit more? Yeah, I think so. And, and actually, um, I went to university in Leeds. So between the ages of sort of 18 and 21, I was up there hanging around student nights and drinking stuff I shouldn't have been drinking. Um, and actually, <clears throat> so I couldn't go to Australia during those years. But actually, interestingly, one of the things I often say to young cricketers is, maybe don't go to uni straight away. Maybe try and give cricket a go first and see, because you only get one crack at being a pro. Um, and I think being in Leeds for three years held my cricket career back. And also I ended up getting a 2-2 because I was either playing cricket or out of the town. And and so cricket also held my degree back. Um, so pick one or the other, really, um, I would say. Because, you know, when you're 21, 22, you know whether you're going to make it as a pro cricketer or not generally in this country. And um, go to uni then if you've not made it, you know. So, yes, um, probably from a purely cricketing perspective, yes, I probably should have not gone to uni and, yes, should have spent three or four or five years even, winters even, going over to Australia like a lot of county cricketers do. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. So the interesting thing for me is I kind of forgotten that you had played more one-day cricket than T20 cricket for England, especially now as you're thought of as a T20 player. I know that's a lot of the back end of your career. Um, in some ways, from a mathematical point of view, I wondered if you weren't the, it wasn't your weakest form of cricket. Um, that not to say that it's it's bad, but just that you know the back half of your first class cricket was so good, and your T Twenty cricket obviously is uh, you know exceptional. I wondered if one of the reasons your one day numbers don't look as good is because you sort of develop into this bowler where through because T Twenty cricket is so important to you professionally, where people have to come at you very hard, and in one day cricket they milk a little bit more. Is that why perhaps your numbers don't pop the way that they do in T Twenty cricket? Yeah, I think so. I mean, List A was certainly the format I enjoyed the least. And you're right, I played 10 ODIs for England and two T20 international. It probably should have been the other way around, really. <laughs> uh, but it's you, know, you get into, or certainly at that time, you were in this sort of the white ball squad. They almost didn't distinguish between the two in some ways. And, and the team I first got into had sort of Jimmy Anderson in it, Alistair Cook, all that kind of stuff. So it was just prior to sort of the Bayless years where things really started to change and modernise. Um, <clears throat> for me personally, yeah, I think it probably does. My skills were Yorkers, slower balls, um, and nous, I guess, uh, and calmness under pressure. Whereas in the list A arena, you need a little bit more of your traditional bowling skill, I would say. So uh, a bit of seam movement, a bit of swing, and, and sort of that nagging sort of violent length, I guess, to an extent. Well, you certainly did then. Again, the game's moved forward, hasn't it, now, where they just, they just tee off from ball one, even in that format. But um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, um, it was a format I found hard, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting looking at that, and also the fact that your entire career comes before England is any good at white ball cricket. Like, 
And also, you could argue before you were really good. Like, I know you have that surge in 2013. You probably picked off the back of that where everyone's like, oh, this is the next big thing. And then, and then England start to get very smart with what they do, but they never come back calling to you again. And so in the end, as you say, your, your numbers are flipped. Like you should have played more T20s for England than you did, uh, than, than you did one day. Um, I just want to get into your T20 cricket career a little bit. So you, you have a good run in your first, in 2009, you play a handful of games and you do quite well. 2010, you get absolutely hammered. Really? Yeah. You went for like, I want to say 9.5. Three runs and over, nine point five runs and over. No other time in your career did you ever go anywhere near those, those numbers. The next three seasons, you go at seven point two six, seven point one six, six point three nine. That's pretty handy. Seven point three four. The fact that you didn't know that is is quite interesting to begin with. Yeah. But clearly, you are working out that format of cricket far quicker than you were working out first class cricket and and, and list A cricket. You just said that list A cricket wasn't particularly your favourite, and obviously, you maybe needed the nurturing environment of the other senior seamers around you at at Knotts when it came to the first class game. Uh, in T Twenty, clearly, you just look. I can look at your numbers, and I can almost see someone who was seeing this as an opportunity to build a career on so how much are you thinking about it in a period of which let's be honest outside of a little bit of um you know nerds looking at Rajasthan, there wasn't that much thinking about t20 cricket back in in that period no and i think probably up until sort of 2016 2017 um i was still very focused on championship cricket i mean i knew that i was never going to play test cricket i knew i wasn't good enough but um i had real pride in my championship performances and i was really what I really wanted to do was win the county championship, um, which I was never able to do. But it was only probably the last three or four years of my career where I started to look at it and go, okay, let's have a think about where my bread's buttered here. Let's have a think about what I want to spend the last few years of my career doing and started to move towards that <clears throat> uh, T20 format a little bit more. Um, and probably one regret that I have, I'm very happily retired. Um, and I don't really... Um, well, I certainly don't don't wish to still be playing when I watch it on TV. But one thing that I do wish is that I'd managed to break into that franchise world three or four years earlier than I did. So I could have I could have gone on that journey for a little bit longer. Well, I've got two questions here. A, you're very famous for fighting with people on Twitter. <laughs> you know, sort of the English Jimmy Neesham uh, uh, sort of role. And one of the things that you do talk about a lot is that T20 cricket. It's interesting to hear you say, though, that, you know, especially because of your age. I mean, you're not, you, you still you still could make a comeback. I'm, I'm positive you're not going to, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I would have thought that, you know, it makes sense that your ultimate aim is to play test cricket and, you know, you work out you can't do that, so the next best thing is championship. That's quite weird, though, thinking back on the fact that you become the poster boy for sort of T20 cricket and fights, fights about the 100 and, you know, all those sorts of things online. But in 10 years' time, most of the sort of things that you said online in those arguments over that five-year period, I'm assuming are going to be fairly norm normalised by that point. But it must be weird to be someone who grew up wanting to win the championship and suddenly being the guy who's seen as um, T20 cricket or bust by fans. Yeah, so I certainly grew up wanting to play test cricket. I think like anyone over the age of 30 did because it was pretty much the only thing that was ever on TV, right? In fact, until probably more recently, that 2003 was the start of T20 cricket. So Someone, someone born in 2003 is only sort of 20 now. So, yeah, I wanted to play test cricket. And then um, I loved T20 cricket. As soon as I started playing it, it was fun. It was more fun. Um, the players love it because people actually turn up to watch at domestic level and, um, and you get all that side of things. But And, yeah, I still had huge pride in it and still have a love for the Red Bull game. I think 
people sometimes confuse my views on Red Bull cricket with a hatred of Red Bull cricket, when in fact it is it certainly is not. You know, I love I love Red Bull cricket. I do have a belief that it's a dying it's a dying sport. It's pretty much dead already. But that doesn't mean to say that I don't love it and didn't love it, and, um, and I hope that I'm wrong. I want to get to the other thing you said that I thought was quite interesting. So I wondered if you had a bad agent. <laughs> Or you, and, and I don't mean a bad agent. So a lot of English, you'll know this very well, but for the listeners, a lot of people have English agents because you're an English cricketer and you're trying to get, you know, a sponsorship with the Nissan dealership in Nottingham so you can get a car and all that sort of normal stuff that you need as an English cricketer. T20 franchise agents are completely different. And as someone who's worked in that field professionally before, it's like sometimes some of the questions I get from English agents about getting their plays, and I was like, you don't even understand how this this works and looking at your record year after year of just like i just read through those economy rates right like and we haven't even got to the fact that you had to bowl at trembridge which means that your numbers are even better than than they appear there year after year you have these incredible um numbers and you don't get it did you not have uh an agent who was actively trying to get you franchise work um and sometimes it, it could just be whether you're the flavor of the month i know it's not even your fault also it probably took a little bit longer for some of the english cricketers to get that bump um because they even though everyone in english cricket seemed to be playing really good white ball cricket that's not the way the rest of the world still saw england at that point um but looking back on it why didn't you make that leap to franchise cricket earlier it's interesting you should bring that up. I've never really thought about it like that before, but you're probably right. That's probably exactly, if you look at the timeline of my career, which I'll tell you in a sec, and you overlay the agents that represented me during that time, <clears throat> there is quite a clear correlation. And um, So I had three agents. Um, the first couple were, I, don't, I certainly wouldn't call them bad agents, but I never broke into the franchise world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then when would it have been? I think summer of 2018, probably, maybe 17, but I signed with Insignia. And that is a big difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's, you know, Eddie Tolchard uh, and Tom Harwood, who looked after me, and Sam, Simon Ortari as well. And that and a couple of other um, moments during that summer combined to suddenly I'm at every, you know, that winter I'm at every T20 competition going. You know, it's, um, it's probably no coincidence. Yeah, I mean... I- I, I wouldn't say that Insignia are the most powerful agents in cricket, although they certainly have some phenomenal players. But as far as being plugged into the T20 machinery, um, I don't mm. think there's probably a better agency to get involved with. So I don't think that 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 makes a lot more sense to me. And and for as I said, there are many very good, hardworking English um, player agents out there, um, but they just don't understand the. They're not on yachts in 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 St Lucia like Eddie is, and I can say that because I was once on a yacht in a yacht. Uh, on a yacht, on a yacht uh, with uh, with Eddie in St. Lucia. So um, it is a di- completely different kind of world that those guys hang out in. All right, let's get to your T20. This is the thing I was most surprised at with your record is that you bowled 46% of your balls in the power play. And by the end of your career, you're really not seen as that sort of a bowler and you're a slow ball bowler. My memory of it, especially towards the end of your career, is you bowled a lot of the back end, the, the, what would you call them, the, the crap power play so the ball's not swinging anymore you bowl like the fourth of the sixth over and the idea is to go at about eight and over and hopefully you know they hit one up in the air and you get a bonus wicket how how does you would have probably started as what first or second over bowler and moved into that sort of a role when do you sort of start to become that different kind of t20 bowler where you know you are uh, just about almost almost exclusively about the economy rather than the wicket taking 
I'd say my memory of my career, for the vast majority of it, I saw myself as two at the start, two at the death, as you point out. And then probably towards the end, started to go more one at the start, one in the middle, one at the two at the death. Dan Christian used to use me. I'd bowl one in the power play and I'd bowl two at the death. And the other one he would keep for, I don't know, a situation where there's a partnership building in the middle of the innings because he felt I had a knack of maybe picking up a wicket or whatever. But yeah, the vast majority was power play and death. And I just, I don't know. I had this, I get this sort of perverse fun out of bowling the most difficult overs. I love the challenge of it. I really, I think at a time where actually, I mean, we touched on my England days earlier. I think one of the reasons I never got back into the England team was because I don't think Owen Morgan particularly prioritised death bowling. His his way was to keep attacking, keep yeah. taking wickets, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't necessarily suit my game. Um, whereas I'd built my career and my reputation on, I'm going to stop people scoring um, and I'm going to be, I'm going to win games for my team at the death. Um, so I didn't really fit to, to Owen's vision for England, which is fair enough. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what I was good at. You know, um, I used to love, early first, first few years of my career, I used to love the best over to bowl in the T20 games, the first over. Because um, if you get it somewhere near, you can get away with sort of two or three run over. But as soon as you become a half-decent bowler, that gets taken away from you because you, because uh, <laughs> they want to use you elsewhere. And yeah, I bowled more and more at the death. There were times probably where I bowled even three at the death. And I just loved the challenge of it. And yes, I had I had these slower balls and, and most people associate me with slower balls. But actually, I think the most important ball I had in my armory was was my Yorker. And I think it's the most important. Yorker, you know, I think still it's the most important ball for any seam bowler playing T20 cricket. So it's interesting you talk about the middle. There were two seasons where you didn't bowl a ball in the middle overs of T20. Wow. And I used the Crick Info metrics of that. So that is actually overs uh, 7 to 16, I think. So we're really, that's a long period. That's sort of two years. In your entire career, you bowled 15% of your deliveries in the middle overs. And I mean, I, I, I saw quite a bit of knots. Um, you know, they've always been a team I've, I've covered quite a bit. And ov- obviously, you guys got good at T20 cricket. So naturally, I had to watch more of you. And, um, you know, and I, I know Dan a little bit as well. So it felt to me that bowling you in the middle was actually like you're a different bowler than Andrew Ty and Benny Howell, obviously, different sort of skill sets. They actually thought that using you in the middle was probably a better option than perhaps the, the you know, that. so maybe the way that Dan used you uh, was almost the ideal way um, of doing that because you did actually have skills, especially when teams were trying to get going. Um, it was quite mm. good. Do you, do you bowl differently in the middle than you do in the desk, knowing that they're not going to be – okay, so that, let's say partnership's coming and at Trent Bridge and they're scoring at eight runs and over. Are you, have you got different plans at that point for bowling to suit two set batters than you would if you're coming on in the 15th or 16th? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, if you just if we just really generalise, generally up front you'll bowl hard length and at the end you're bowling fuller, you know, Yorkers, you know, slow balls or whatever. And in the middle you've got that sort of hybrid period where it's like, are they going hard? Are they knocking it around a little bit? I mean, I'd love to have bowling more in the middle. The field spread. They might be not, they're not going quite so hard, mm. so you can really look after your figures. But I found, I found, I mean, the, the, the teams, you know, the good teams that I played in generally had um, sort of medium paces and or spinners that just bowled the, the lion's share of the overs through the middle. And I think, like I say, my real, my real value was at the death. So yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you're right. I suppose your AJ Ty kind of, kind of role, Benny Howell kind of role, wouldn't be that dissimilar to me. Mm. 
Uh, especially towards the end of your career, I think that would have been a really interesting when you were completely on top of the slow ball specifically. I think it would have mm-hmm. been really, really interesting. So there's probably two kinds of successful death bowlers over a long period of time. You have someone like Dwayne Bravo, who some years can go at almost 11 runs and over at the death, but the next year will go at about six. And But he'll take a lot of wickets consistently all the way through. And then you have sort of the more your kind of um, successful death bowler where I think, let's have a look, your best year at the death were 7.9 um, runs and your worst year was 9.3. There's not a lot of flex- you know, fluctuation between those. You're not yet, there's no Mustafiza year there, but there's also no Dwayne Bravo you know, what year that gets away. Is that because – so I, I've always thought that the guys who have the bigger fluctuations, usually they have huge revolutions on their slow balls and they're probably years where – their wrist is sore, their elbow sore, their shoulder's sore, whatever it is, they're not getting as much. And then maybe not quite as good at the Yorkers. With you, I didn't feel like you had, I, I felt like you had a lot of revolutions on your ball, but it was very consistent revolutions. It wasn't, you know, you didn't have a Harshal Patel year out of nowhere where the ball just falls off a table, right? And then, uh, and you've talked about this a lot already, that having that Yorker meant that you have a, a more even keel than perhaps a bowler who's just relying on their slow ball at the end. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking it's going to be a hard question to answer, but I think the Yorker is the key, you know, and, and like I say, it's not, it's not. I don't think necessarily a ball that people associate with me. Everyone just thinks, you know, back of the hand slow ball. And of course, that was um, a really useful delivery for me and, a, and one of the main reasons for my success. But um, as important for me in my book was my Yorker and the way that I practiced that in order to ensure that I could execute it consistently under pressure because it's a very difficult ball to bowl. The reason a lot of bowlers don't bowl it is because the margin for error is so is so small and they just don't back themselves. So yeah, I mean, I used to just practice that for hours and hours on end, and it, and it's it was a go to. And what it and what it gives you when you've got a Yorker that you're confident in, it just gives you confidence going into games. And you know you've got that to fall back on. So yeah, quite possibly that quite possibly was the difference. I don't know. Although you know, Dwayne Bravo didn't have a bad Yorker either, did he? I mean, he had a good Yorker. The, the other difference is that he had a Yorker and an off-cutter, and you have a Yorker and a back-of-the-hand ball. And I mm. was trying to think if there's another death specialist who has had that, and maybe Jade Dernback, but as good as Jade was, he wasn't as accurate as your Yorker. The other thing I thought was interesting about your death bowling is, especially looking around that 2017, 2018 period, and then obviously 2019 where you play a million games, you know, thanks to Insignia, is the back-of-the-length ball. I thought that you were quite good. At, and, and this is something that I know the knots had that theory. I don't know, whatever it was that Dan, that, um, that Dan Christian had of sort of bowling at the hip of players and, and sort of blocking them. So you would do that. Um, he would do that. And obviously Jake, uh, uh, I think, was the, other, the third senior that you had at that point, Jake Ball. So perhaps having that, those three different options uh, w- was part of it. But you did actually, this, this is the other thing. Talking about Trent Bridge, you guys are incredibly successful over a short period of time in T20 cricket. You sort of take over from North, sort of Northamptonshire with money. Let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> and that in that period, it was, I think during your peak years, it was the seventh fastest scoring ground in T20 cricket. And there are periods where it is the fastest scoring ground in T20 cricket there. It, I think there's a couple of years it goes over nine runs and over one. I might even float with 10 runs and over in one season. It's ridiculous numbers. 
I wondered if, because you didn't play all that other franchise cricket, so you're not having to play for your lunch. You know you're going to play for Nottingham next year, most probably, even if you have a bit of a poorer season. It's a different relationship to when you start to play franchise cricket. You know also that you're going to have to go into games. Some of those boundaries at Trent Bridge were like, I think I went to a game where the boundaries were inside the inside the 30-yard circle, right? Like it was ridiculous how small they were. Does that allow you a certain amount of experimentation? Because you know you're going to go for runs anyway. There's no... You, there's no way you can be a, a notch bowler in T20 cricket and end up with an economy rate of 6.2. Not like if you play for Guyana, you can bowl absolute ass, right? But as long as you bowl at the stumps, chances are you're going to have a low economy rate. At knots, is there a, a little bit more of a, yeah, just an experimentation or a little bit less pressure and knowing you're going to go in and if you go at eight, eight and a half and over, it allows you to actually maybe find your groove a little bit differently than you would on a, on, on a pitch where you've got to bowl seam up and you've got to nip it around. You've got to think about other things. In, in Nottingham, Almost, you're you're almost trained to think so defensively. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think yeah. I mean, there, there probably are certain times where you're at the end of your mark and you think, well, you know, any ball I bowl here could could land ten rows back. So maybe in some sort of weird way, it does give you that extra bit of confidence to experiment a little bit more, try something a little bit different. You know, one of the things that I used to do quite a lot towards the end of my career, and again, your traditional coach hates this, but um, I'd I generally set a field for. I could bowl at least two variations too. So, for example, towards the end of my career, my default position, my default field was a spinner's field. So, third man and fine leg are up in the ring, right? Because I'm bowling Yorkers and slower balls. And, um, but I'd occasionally slip in a wide Yorker, but I'd leave third man up. Now, coaches, you know, when that get when the batsman jams his bat down on it and it squirts down there for four, coaches are in the dugout tearing their hair up. Um, and they think you're an idiot because you didn't put third man back. But, but for me, if you put third man back, you're sort of telegraphing to an extent what you're going to do. And as long as it's a bluff, um, which is occasional in amongst all the other stuff, I got braver at doing things like that. Um, I remember doing it against Kyron Pollard in the CPL a couple of times and can look like an idiot. But yeah, I guess when you're playing on a ground where pretty much any delivery you bowl on any one day can go for six, you are prepared probably to take slightly more risks. Um so yeah, again, very insightful. I've never really thought about it like that, but yeah, you're probably right. Well, the other thing I always thought watching you is that you were very in control and very level-headed when you were bowling at the death. And I actually, I think I interviewed you once for TalkSport because I was interested to see if you, there's, there's a baseball pitcher who um, I, I read up on him and he basically said he goes into, it doesn't matter, he knows who the batters are beforehand and he goes, okay, well, if I, if I, when I'm um, pitching to this guy, I'm going to go, this ball, this ball, this ball, this ball, this ball in this uh, in this order. And the reason he does it is because baseball pitch, uh, baseball batters essentially are sitting there and they're reading the pitcher and they're thinking, well, he's just pitched this, so now he's going to pitch this. Where you know, because and and this guy's going, well, you won't be able to do that because I've already pressed shuffle on my iPod, <laughs> and all these things are going to come out. And no matter what you do and what I do, this is going to be the next pitch. I'm watching you at times. That's kind of how I felt you did it, and that's. The, the big advantage on that, and I'm not sure if any death bowler has ever done this before, but the big advantage on that is basically what professional batters do is is they read bowlers, right? You're too fast mm. for them to be able to actually react to you know, mm. uh, you, what you're doing. And so that, it felt like to me you were so in control of what you were doing. And, you know, you cost me a, you cost me my own, probably the only title of T20 cricket I was ever going to win was going to be for the, uh, in the Big Bash, uh, Melbourne Stars. And, you know, you sort of cost that. And you were just so, watching that game, just again, and so many times I saw you bowl for the Renegades and for Knots, just so, just in control of exactly what you were going to do in that next movement. It's, it's interesting because you're not someone who played 50 or 100 beat 
big games. And to be honest, you spent most of your time playing in front of smaller crowds um, domestically in your whole career. Where did that sort of stuff come from? Because that level-headedness, and you mentioned Karen Pollard, he's someone who talks about this a lot, that kind of level-headedness in T20 cricket is so important. And a lot of players, they feel the adrenaline of the one good ball, and then they chase that next good ball, and then the guy scoops it over his head for six, and you know all those sorts of things happen. How did you sort of get through that side of it? I'm not sure, but, you, but you're right. That was certainly probably my biggest strength um, above everything else, I think, was the ability to remain calm under pressure um, and the ability to just to keep my emotions completely under control, whether I've just been hit for two sixes in a row or whether I've just you know taken two wickets in a row. That was never a big one for celebrating, which I think used to infuriate batters when I got them out. Um, but it wasn't an arrogance. It was just, a, it was just that I, I just felt like I was doing my job. And so that was a big strength of mine. No matter what was happening, you know, Dan Christian or whoever could chuck me the ball and they would know that I'd be really pragmatic about the situation. I'd be really calm and I wouldn't allow the crowd or the cameras or the game situation to affect me for whatever reason. In your example of the baseball pitcher, I never got, I never got to, to the level that, that you described with him where he was sort of prescriptive pre-game, but I certainly had a bit of a system, I think, um, during games. So and I've watched other bowlers around the world that, that, that do similar things, but you know, if you bowl, if I bowl a hard length ball at a batter, at a right-handed batter, and they get off strike, I'll just roll a hard length ball at the next guy again. If he doesn't get off strike, or he gets a two or a four or a six, and he's back on strike, I'm probably going to change it. I'm probably either going to go come round the wicket and bowl hard length, or I'm going to stay over the wicket and change it up and bowl a slower ball or something like that. One of the other little secrets that I um, I had was that um, I would, if I got hit for six. Um, Whatever ball I was attempting to execute when I got hit for six, I would attempt to execute again the very next ball because all batters think that bowlers are thick, right? So if you if I bowl a slot ball, right, I attempted Yorker slot ball six, the batter's standing there thinking there's no way he's going to bowl another one out again. He'll go back of the hand or bouncer or whatever. So I would always just go Yorker again. And likewise with a slower ball. And scarily often that is that is effective because batters, batters just... They just expect you to do the opposite of what's just resulted in the bad outcome. Um, whereas by repeating it again, and I got this off Paul Nixon, um, by repeating the same ball again, you get a huge amount of success. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, that's a similar kind of way because essentially what you're doing is you're playing in how the batters are reading the bowlers, right? And, and, and you know, in that situation. And as the problem is if, if you know, in your, with your skill set, you can perfect that ball the next ball. The problem is if you don't, of course, and you bowl another slot ball, even if he's not expecting it, it might still go and then the coach comes back to you. But if you nail the Yorker next one, you look like a genius. Um, and mm. now the batter, the batter's probably thrown out of their pattern as well. They don't, now can't work out what you're going to do. I, I think that's really interesting. When does the, yeah. uh, the I mean, the back of hand solo ball, I think is one of the most fascinating balls in cricket because it's still, when it's done correctly, it's still incredibly successful. And yet such a small percentage of bowlers have the ability to do it. We saw Dwayne Pretorius suddenly started in the 2021 World Cup bowling it like I would bowl it. Um, you know, just going all over the place. Sometimes you would bowl the best ball you've ever seen and the next ball was a half tracker and everything else. It's a really hard ball to go. When does that, uh, when does that come into your armory? And is that your first slow ball? No, so I always had a cutter, just, just your traditional sort of off cutter. But the back of the hander came into my game, oh, I don't know, probably 2009, 10, pretty early on. I was at Grace Road netting with Josh Cobb. And I bowled it at a guy called, we had a guy called Jacques de Toy at, uh, at Leicester at the time as well, a really talented right-handed South African guy who just belted it. He was sort of ahead of his time. 
and Josh Cobb, who has ended up being obviously an aggressive opening batsman that um, I'm sure you're aware of. So, uh, and I was bowling at Josh in the nets during a game once. We were 12th and 13th man uh, for a four day, I think. We said, let's go for a net. So we went for a net. Um, and I tried it out a few times against him in the nets. And, and he was like, that's just, you know, really hard to pick, really effective. You should do it in a game. And the biggest thing, and I've, and I've had this conversation, I had, remember having this conversation with Luke Wood um, at Knotts a few years ago, is, is picking your moments. You practice it in the nets until you're reasonably confident in executing it. But it's then picking your moment to bowl it for the first time in a professional game. Um, and for me, the moment came against Darren Stevens. We were playing, I think it was a Pro 40 game um, at Grace Road, and, and they needed about 10 to win with 10 overs left, two down or whatever. Um, and I got thrown the ball. So I thought, well, you know, now's, now's as good a time as any. It doesn't matter if it comes out horrendously. Um, and it came out really well. Didn't get him out, but foxed him a bit, landed it exactly where I wanted it. And, and um, from that point onwards, I had the confidence to use it in, in games. Um, so, yeah, I had it for pretty much my whole career, to be fair. Yeah, that, that's a long, long period. And that probably shows also why you sort of perfected it. Like it wasn't something that just came late. How often... Did you bowl the traditional cutter? So I think of Clint Mackay, um, uh, Tamal Mills, you know, those are guys with other brilliant back of the hands, lower balls. Um, even even Jade, um, uh, they basically don't bowl the cutters once they get the back of the hands, lower ball. And it is the better ball uh, because, and we'll explain why in a minute. But I've always thought that you still want to have a very good cutter and still use it. And I felt that you probably more than most back of the hands, lower ball bowlers still used your cutter a little bit more than maybe some of the other guys did. Yeah. It was incredibly effective delivery because it's sort of in in terms of pace, it's sort of halfway between my full pace on ball and my back of the hands, lower ball. So it's about 20 mile an hour difference between my pace on and my back of the hands, slowly. The cutter sort of feels falls somewhere in between the two. The other key difference is the cutter, uh, I would use a lot more against right-handed batters and the back of the hand I'd use a lot more against left-handed batters. That's why I wondered if, yeah, because yeah. that's such a natural advantage, right? Because if, especially if there's yeah. any spin in the pitch or any grip in the pitch, mm-hmm. you have the ability to yeah. take it away. Whereas maybe a right-arm bowler is thinking, uh, it's just going to spin back into his, his arc anyway. Yeah, exactly. So going back to the rhythm of the over thing I was talking about earlier, if I'm bowling at Alex Hales in the big bash and I've bowled a hard length ball and he's blocked it, I'm probably not going to run in and bowl a hard length ball again, unless it's the first or second over um, because I want to change it up. So I would probably bowl a cutter or come around the wicket or whatever. So yeah, that cutter certainly predominantly to right handers. Um, but, but at any time really just, just, just to mix things up and keep the batsman guessing, you know, that was a real theme for me that you've touched on is you got to stay one step ahead of them because these guys are so good at, at smacking it out of the ground these days. You talked before about Josh Cobb saying it was hard to pick. We use that word a lot with slower balls, but realistically, Josh Cobb is a professional batter. If he can't pick the, the balls coming out of the back of your hand, I worry for his career, right? <laughs> yeah. There are there are issues with this. The first is, and this happens with bowlers who bowl really good um, cutting deliveries, but it's mostly the back of the hand slower balls, which is that the ball goes up a little bit. And then when you're batting, the first thing you think is, that's going to hit me in the face. And then obviously it drops and, and you realize what's happening. It doesn't work unless you put massive revolutions on the ball, right? So how often do you think someone actually didn't pick it? More and more often what happens is that the the dip and then the bounce, which are the it's the it's sort of that's why I think is great about that particular delivery. It's got it sort of beats batters twice, right? The dip and then the bounce um is more more important, do you think? Or 
is there really am i am i being wrong here that you know professional batters are just not picking this as much or is it the fact that because it goes up it scrambles their brain and so it's almost like it doesn't come out of the hand like a normal delivery so it's almost like their their computer can't you know work it out straight away yeah i think you're probably right it's probably more the latter isn't it it's probably more deception in the air and off the pitch um and, and ultimately, even if they do pick it at the point that the ball leaves your hand, they've still got very little time to react and, and adjust. And um, they're winding up to, for, for an 85-mile-an-hour ball, and they're just ready to, you know, right in the slot, and they're, you know, going deep in their crease, ready, you know, hoping for a Yorker or whatever, and then it comes out a loopy slow ball. They've got to react to it, even if they know it's, you know, even if they, at the point that you let go of it, it's pretty obvious that it's a slow ball. And you're right, you know, by that point, any any batsman, any professional batsman will go, oh, it's a slowy, but... We're talking split seconds, aren't we? And then, as you say, you've got the the dip and the bounce and, and that kind of thing to to um, take into account as well. So I have done the numbers on it. So you, you, what you were saying before is roughly correct. So the best one is Tamal Mills because we have we have numbers of all three. And but Anrik Nokia also bowls all three, um, and it really is. It's it, they're about 150 on pace, and they're about 100 and th- between 128 and 135 for their cutters, and then their slow balls. C- Tamal can get down to about 95 with his, so base slower than um, uh, Rashid Khan. Um, and then most bowlers are between 95 and 110 at that slow ball. So it really is. And the one thing that you hear batters talk about is keeping their shape. That's why I thought it was very interesting if you, and, and you know, there's a few bowlers, but not that many, who do have all three. And by all three, one the middle one may not be a cutter. It may be the knuckleball, whatever it is. But they have the three different pace differentials. Mm. Looking back, do you is that another bit, especially as you get a little bit slower, is that another big advantage of, okay, so he know, he's waiting for the back of the hand slower ball and he knows that he has to keep his shape, right? And he mm. also knows that he can't be – he has to wait for it to bounce. He can't sort of lo- lose his momentum by coming forward to it. But then if you have that third option um, of that that other delivery as well – that to me would be the should be the future of of T twenty bowling um, and probably white ball bowling. Whereas I would have thought in the in the era that you played, most bowlers probably had their one slow ball and then their on pace ball. But going ahead, you probably need to at least have a a C ball available to you, unless your your slow ball is you know like Mustafa Zaraman's and it doesn't matter because no one can hit it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think. Certainly, you know, for me, one of my big policies was always to whatever field I set to have at least two variations I could bowl to that field and ideally three. And the beauty of a Yorker and two slower balls is you could bowl pretty much all three to the same field within reason. But yeah, and it's also just that extra bit of doubt in the batsman's mind, isn't it? They, you know, everyone talks about, I mean, I was never one of these bowlers like, you know, your AJ Ties or your uh, whatever, who's got, you know, nine slower balls or 20 slower balls or however many he says he's got these days people do assume that I had lots of different slow balls when I talk to them about the game. And I think the reason for that is I actually had two, but I would bowl them from over the wicket, bowl them yeah. around the wicket. I bowl slow ball bouncers, slow ball Yorkers. I bowl wide slow balls. I bowl straight slow balls. So there are lots of variations within those two particular deliveries. And, and it does, it just allows you to keep the batsman guessing. If you can get a batter, because you know, if I'm at the end of my mark in front of 50,000 people, there's an element of, of course, any human would feel an element of nerves there. Right. But, the batsman at the other end feels exactly the same way. And if you can get them in that situation to be second-guessing themselves or doubting what's coming down, um, then you've won half the battle. And I think that's what I was good at. Talk about having the back of the hand slow ball early on, but you're not really a slowable bowler early on. It really does take a long time. Do, is that a conscious thing or is it just one of those things of, you know, I have a little bit more success, I have a little bit more success, I have a little bit more success, and just over time you just end up – because I would have thought, especially that 2019 season, I, 
saw you bowl a lot that year. In 2018, I suppose, as well. By that point, I would have thought you would have one of the highest percentage of slower balls being bowled in the world. So Dwayne Bravo, for instance, doesn't have a particularly high one. He's famous for them, but he doesn't. I would have thought you would have had a very, very high percentage of slower balls by that season. Probably if I think back to that big bash that we won, I was probably out of 24 balls a game. I was probably bowling 10 slower balls, maybe 12. I think that's literally what my notes said on you. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. And some of it is down to the fact that throughout my career, I probably did bowl slightly more slow, uh, slow balls and slightly fewer pace on balls. But also some of it might be down to perception because in the first half of my career, as I said earlier, believe it or not, I did have a yard of pace as well. Yeah. So my pace on balls were probably more noticeable. Um, whereas the last sort of five years of my career, the, the pace on balls probably didn't seem noticeably fast compared to my slower balls half the time. So uh, another England player asked me this question the other day, and I thought you'd be you'd be an interesting one uh, to come up with an answer. We know that England, you know, from 2015 onwards, the T20 or and one day uh, team completely changes in English cricket. It's almost all batting, right? There's a couple of bowlers. Don't get me wrong. I know Rashid, and obviously Liam Plunkett is quite an interesting one as well. And now Sam Curran, you almost have to throw him in in there as well. If you look at that, there actually have been some outlier bowls. I would say that you're an outlier bowler. Um, I would say that obviously Benny Howell was another one and probably Pat Brown is another one. That, and maybe Pat, Matt Parkinson might even be in that, that he's a, legs, a very slow leg spinner without a wrong in. They haven't been chosen. And, and a lot of that is because you guys couldn't bat, right? And, you know, well, that's a bit unfair, yeah. Benny, but you know, there's many reasons why Benny wasn't picked. But, uh, you know, you couldn't, the rest of you couldn't bat. But it did feel like that whole revolution was very batting dependent. And, and it was, and, and do you, did you see a change where there were, or am I just picking out the four guys that, you know, were a bit more like this? Are there more guys out there that are like that, but England are looking for a bloke who can bowl 90 miles an hour and whack him or a guy can bowl leg spin and, and play unorthodox and give you some batting. Um, do you think the batting is the reason why we're not seeing them? Or have I just picked out the four guys and it, you know, you, there was individual reasons why all four of you didn't make it through to the team. Uh, I think it's probably a combination of all the factors you've just, just mentioned really there are people who played during that period i'm thinking people like tomorrow people like reese uh topley who not necessarily particularly strong with the with the willow um but who were outstanding bowlers and therefore got into the team so while lack of batting ability is a factor i don't think it necessarily totally rules you out i think i touched on it earlier briefly for me what hurt me i think was um with owen as captain he he was very focused on early wickets power play keeping slipping as long as you can, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that, that wasn't my style. My style was to restrict and stop them scoring and, and stop them taking uh, wickets as much as possible. In terms of why we seem to have produced more batters, uh, why more batters in this country, I think part of it comes down to coaching. I don't actually think in the scene department there are enough coaches out there with sort of the knowledge and experience of playing in modern white ball cricket you know, or white ball cricket at all. You know, it astounds me how many coaches still think that, uh, you know, running in a bowling line and length is the thing to do. Um, or, or, you know, your traditional field of having, you know, fine leg and third bat, third man and deep square leg back. It just, they haven't sort of moved with the times. They don't understand the cut and thrust of T20. And that will now start to change. You'll start to get younger coaches coming in who, who do understand it and do appreciate it. Someone like a, you know, the best I work with, Andrew McDonald, really understood what he would describe as the rhythm of the over. And that just mindset out on the pitch of being one step ahead of the batter and right, okay, we've done that, this has happened, now what? I don't think there's any sophistication 
well, there's certainly not a huge amount of sophistication in that department um, in the UK in, the, in, in coaching. I think it's probably changing. Andy Pick, I have to say, having said all of that at Knotts, was brilliant. Really enjoyed working with him. One of the things that uh, he and I worked on, talked about my cutter. I got to the point where for the last few years of my career, I'm sure no one in the world noticed this, but my first ball of every single game was a cutter. So it doesn't matter where I was in the world, what over in the game it was, I would bowl a cutter first ball. And that was because, A, batsman was not expecting it. B, it was a ball that I was confident I was going to land in the right area. And see if there was any grip whatsoever, it just makes it slightly more difficult for the batsman to hit. And that gets you into your spell and gets you confident. Now, and I, I used to bowl it cross seam as well. So it's a bit like a spinner, really. So the seam would be going down, um, sort of like that. And, and almost any coach would not agree with that policy. No, oh no, you should have it seam up. You should try and swing it. You know, you should run in. You should stay over the wicket. You know, you should try and swing it back into the right hander. You should have a slip in, whatever. So I think sometimes just thinking outside the outside the box a little bit would help. And I think we're probably moving in the right direction in this country. But um, there's a bit of a lag, isn't there? You know, we mm. we got good at T20 cricket about six years ago, um, and so probably better coaches will start to come through now off the back of that. That's interesting. Um, I'm going to go back in my notes and see if I said that you bowled. I think I would have said that you bowled solo balls in the power play. I don't think I would have said that you bowled a uh, first ball, but there are little tweaks like that. There's, you know, is it um, Adil Rashid bowls a slider first ball, doesn't he? Like there, bowlers have that ball that, to get in into there, um, which which you know in the future will be quite interesting because people will start to pick up on that sort of stuff. I want to talk about 20, uh, 2019 uh, just to finish up here. You played CPL, Big Bash, IPL. You played in the PSL that year as well. I'm trying to remember. PSL, T10, yeah. You were absolutely everywhere. Um, you played as many games in 2019 as you did the three years combined, maybe one less, but it was, but it was about exactly the same. And your your numbers were incredible. You took 56 wickets at 22, going eight and over, bowling at the death. Uh, you went at nine in the death, which considering everyone had seen you bowl that year, uh, every time anyone turned on the TV, you were in a game. <laughs> we talked about how that happened through, uh, you know, uh, getting insignia as your agents and, um, and that sort of thing. That's a, you are basically an old-fashioned professional cricketer at that point in your six months on, six months off. Suddenly, that is a huge amount of cricket and a huge amount of travel that you probably never had to do before. How much different was that for you? And also having to work out Pakistan, India, Australia, uh, Caribbean. There's a lot of challenges you had to do in, one, in the space of one year. And I know you know your game very well, but you didn't know all those other places as well. No, no, God, I absolutely loved it. Such fun memories of that period. I think... With anything, you know, it's like when you play, when you step up and play your first club first team game and then your first county game and then your first England game and then your first franchise game, you're always sort of thinking, God, am I, am I actually going to be good enough to do this? Um, and then you get into it and you think, oh, it's just another game of cricket. There's some stumps 22 yards apart. Let's crack on. But yeah, you're right. I mean, up until that point, I've been traveling around the UK, really, staying in Marriott's and Holiday Inns and, and, and uh, trundling away in county cricket and the next thing I know I'm on I'm flying around the world business class and staying in five-star hotels and playing in front of these big crowds with loud music and all that kind of stuff and it was very very different but because of my nature as a person where I was always very emotionally level it didn't affect me uh, certainly not adversely anyway I, I really enjoyed playing in front of uh, big crowds it, it, uh, it was great fun. Here's the real reason I mentioned this takes you a long time to really become a professional where you're not worried about losing your job. You then have about a six-year period where you, you're great, but you play a couple of times for England, but you're not, you know, you're not going to be one of those guys that turns up at England grounds, uh, gets paid 500 quid to sit in someone's box or anything like that. But you've got an English career. 
you know, your kind of your kind of structure. A lot of players, obviously, you know, play as long as they can, um, and then maybe go into end up with a cushy posh um, teaching job. You just crack the money side of cricket. You just get to a point where KKR fans know who you are. You're you know a bit of a celebrity in Melbourne, and you know all these sorts of things are happening, and you retire. <laughs> that is why when I started started this, trying to get a, an, an idea, and you know, I I don't know you particularly well. We've chatted a couple of times. Um, I've obviously followed your career quite close. That just seems to me like such a bizarre thing to do because so many professional cricketers hold on. And I could also imagine if you'd left before that year, like at 2017, 2018, you're like, oh, I proved it. I've done everything I've wanted to do in the game. I left. But you, you finally have this massive explosion. The year of Harry Gurney. Let's, that's, I mean, some people talk about, you know, Ben Stokes in 2019. For me, it's all about you. And then you leave. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I think I, said, I touched on this briefly earlier. I wish, I'd, I wish I'd got into that world sooner than I did. I wish I'd signed with Insignia sooner and maybe put myself out there a bit more. Um, because I did love it, but I don't necessarily wish that I'd carried on longer. I think if you ask my dad or you ask my wife, you know, they really wish I'd carried on longer. Um, my dad was loving watching me travel around the world playing these competitions. My wife was obviously loving me being out of the country as well. I don't know why. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. There was a multitude of factors, really. I did have shoulder surgery as well. So I got to, when COVID hit um, early 2020, uh, we went into this lockdown, uh, obviously, and, and I had this enforced sabbatical like everyone. And I just got really got stuck into my business. Um, and I was really present for my family during that time. And if you remember in the UK, um, the weather was amazing. Every afternoon you go out for, a, for your daily exercise and have a walk around down the road or whatever. And I just loved it. I would work on my business all day. And I'd go for a walk with the family. Then we'd cook. And I didn't miss cricket at all. In fact, quite the opposite. And then we went back to it late that summer, if you remember. And mm. I was just ramping up again for the blast. We had like a truncated blast tournament that year, which I think Knotts ended up winning. But I didn't take any part in it because we were just getting back into it and my shoulder seized up. I'd had this quite chronic shoulder issue that I'd been nursing for two or three years. In fact, the CPL, um, just prior to COVID with Barbados, um, the semi-final and the final, I was in absolute agony. So looking back, I knew, I think I knew I was in a bit of trouble, but ended up having surgery anyway and, and then spending that next winter doing rehab for six months with Piper at Trent Bridge and trying to make a comeback but I think in my heart I knew that I didn't really want it enough anymore and had I been a, a hungry 25 year old I probably would still be playing and I would have come back from the injury but I think at 35 with a business that that's the other thing at that time uh, April 2021 when the world started opening back up again our business really took off um, and I could see a new path opening up in front of me and, and I'd love being at home with my family and my body was starting to let me down. And so it just felt the right thing to do. And I can honestly say I've not, you know, not for one minute have I ever regretted it. I, I do not, I love the game of cricket. Um, I still watch it. Uh, I hope that my son Arthur and my daughter Mabel want to play it. Um, but I have no desire to anymore. Um, I'm really comfortable with it. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. 
Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by the Red Cricket. Podcast Network.